Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hello and welcome. It's Sunday and that means it's time for the Football Social Daily Premier League weekend review show. The international break is behind us. We don't need to worry about that. Forget about it. It's all over. We don't even need to think about international football for at least five more months. And with the Premier League back in full swing, we've got plenty to get through on the show, including Jose versus Pep, Everton's title challenge back on track and yet more VAR drama at Old Trafford. My name's Fergal Brennan and I'm on the record button tonight. And to get through all the weekend's action, I'm joined by Goal.com's Manchester City correspondent, Jonathan Smith. Jonathan, how are we? I'm very well, thanks. Good to be back. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good indeed. And we also have another Manchester City man, king of wrestling, king of podcasts. In fact, probably the man who puts the odd in podcast, Ant McGinley. Ant, how are we? <laughs> I like that. I'm going to keep that on my Twitter from now on. Thank you very much, Fergal. That makes it worthwhile. I'm going to waive my fee for tonight. That's perfect. OK, that's that's a legal and binding contract. He said it now. He's waived his fee. Uh, yeah, you can you can have the rights to that trademark. I'll happily sign that over. Um, right, so obviously the big result from the weekend is that Jose Pep subplot. Tottenham 2-0 winners over Manchester City. And that's where we're going to start the show in part two. We're going to be looking at the red half of Manchester. 1-0 at Old Trafford against West Brom. But still very very nervy for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and then in part three it's Everton whose Premier League title challenge is back on track as they won 3-2 away at Fulham plus all the other goals action and talking points from the weekend right Jonathan you were at the game yesterday between Tottenham and Manchester City and obviously all the talk before the game was was Jose against Pep and, and even after the game both managers were asked about this rivalry between them in, in their press conferences you'd almost be forgiven to be forgiven for forgetting that uh, there was actually a football match and a brilliant tactical demonstration by Mr Mourinho yeah uh, it's great to see Mourinho back doing what he does best he seems to have got his mojo back at, at Spurs you know I think the last the, the end the end years at Chelsea and his time at Manchester United were very dour and he's been given this team which are excellent side he, he knows what to do with them it, it, they were all, he was written off as a tactical dinosaur and he got it absolutely spot on against City and you know, he was asked after the game whether Tottenham are title challengers, and he sort of played down, you know, in typical Mourinho fashion. Uh, but I think they certainly are. Uh, and when you look at this from a Manchester City fan perspective and, and the result and Guardiola looking miserable at full time, the game, in terms of a tactical point of view, went exactly as you would have expected. Mourinho looked to be defensively organised and looked to press City in the right areas and, and make use of the chances that they created. Guardiola, as we would expect, wanted City to have plenty of the ball and looked to build through a, a fairly organised Tottenham team. Given the fact that both managers know exactly what the other one is going to do, does that make this an even bigger black mark against Guardiola? You know, it's going to be a little bit controversial for me to say this, but I think it, at the very least, is a question mark. And obviously it's been a great week in many ways off the pitch because 
uh, I would dare say that 90 plus percent of City fans are really happy that Guardiola signed an extension for at least another two years uh, and all the other things that might imply without going down that particular path. But what worries me about this is the, the last few seasons, the games we've had against Spurs have always been very close. And for the most part, City have edged it. Obviously, famously, you know, the, the one that we didn't, uh, even though we won it, we ended up going out of the two legs in the Champions League uh, games that we had against them. But those games have all been very close and we've seen what's coming at Spurs. We've seen what's been developing. Like, there's been the constant threats, not just, you know, of, of Kane and Son. Uh, and... and for all the money that we've spent on the defence, I mean, that's maybe something because you're actually at the game you can break down. But how we managed to let Son slip through like that, Jonathan, was just really bad. But the the thing for me was, it just feel, felt like I've seen this before a couple of times. And the one that really sprung to mind was last season at home against Wolves. And they, they did a very similar job on us. And they had Triori go and score two goals. And basically, very, very similar sort of feel to the game as there was with that one. And so that just makes me think, if we come up against a team who has the players and they have the tactical nows in the management to play a certain way against us, we're found out. And Guardiola, and, and, and this is unfair of me to put this on him because obviously I don't have a solution here, but if Guardiola is the tactical genius that he is, you would imagine that at some point he's going to come up with a way to counter that. So it, it, the, the, the back and forth. So he's found a way to, to break through, break records, score all these goals. Teams have learned to play against him, found a way around. Once he found that, then it's back in his court. So it's his job now to turn that back around. But I'm not sure how he does that or if he's even got an answer at the moment. Well, Jonathan, Ant raises an interesting point there. Obviously, your position at the ground, able to see the, the positioning of the players. Us watching it on television, the, the two goals, particularly Son's goal in the first half, looked very straightforward. And Dombele's ball forward, the, the City defence were just completely out of position. And even Giovanni Lo Celso's goal in the second half, Kane's ball into him. City looked so slow getting back. Uh, for me, everyone could see what Kane was going to do with that ball but the City defenders didn't really seem to be able to react in time. Did it look like that from your perspective? Yeah, it did from the ground. I mean, the the the, the thing that's happened since Ruben Diaz signed is that him and Laporte have actually looked quite settled together and, and the defence was starting to look like they were becoming, you know, the, the dominant defence that they have been under Guardiola. You go back to the title-winning seasons, I mean, everyone talks about the goals that they scored. They didn't actually concede too many. And obviously, Vincent Kompany was a key part of that and they took a long time to replace him. And John Stones has struggled, others have struggled. Um, but that first goal against uh, that Spurs scored, like you say, it was it was quite a simple run, really. The, the two central defenders got drawn to Kane. You know, it's quite a, a, a clever movie, just stepped up um, and Sun ran in behind Cancelo got drawn got drawn across with him and they were, the back line there was no straight line playing the offside and that's not great obviously we're talking about centre-halves but left-back has also been a problem Cancelo has improved recently and he, he looks like he, he might be the answer but essentially he is a right-footed left-back and they need a, a better um, alternative than that um, I mean, just going back to, to what Ant was saying there, you know, I think Son and Jamie Vardy have scored more Premier League goals against City than any other Premier League strikers. And, and, the, uh, and the worrying thing about that is they are very similar players. They are explosive players who like to play on the counter-attack. And, uh, and City don't seem to have an answer in how to stop this. It's, you know, the game against Leicester in the season when City were beaten 5-2 at the Etihad, it was... Uh, everyone knew what the plan was. It was to... For City to will will play a high line like they always do, and Vardy will run in behind it, and he did that again, scored a hat trick. You know, Son and Kane have have got a very very promising relationship under mm. under Mourinho. The way it's developing, they they seem to know instinctively what each of the other is doing, and Son was always going to be the big threat. And within four minutes, he showed exactly why, and City should really be coming up with the answers to this. 
And obviously, when you look at the situation with Son getting the goal, and, and as uh, Jonathan points out, his record against City and Vardy's record and City's general um, defensive fragility when dealing with pacey strikers, I think a lot of that comes down to Laporte and Diaz backing themselves to, to be able to live with most strikers in, in one-on-one situations, almost as Virgil van Dijk did with, with Liverpool um, last season. But the interesting one for me was Kane. And we've talked about this new role that he's taken on with, with England as well as Tottenham of dropping in and matching the number on his back, which is a number 10. And City simply weren't able to deal with that. They couldn't decide whether Laporte should come out and deal with it. They couldn't decide whether Rodri should be dropping in and, and picking him up. And Rodri, for me, I've had misgivings about his performances for City since he's come from Atletico Madrid. And this was another big game where he's been detailed with dealing with a situation or at least helping with a situation. And he's not stepped up to the plate. Yeah, um, if I can just say a word in the positive for any Spurs fans out there, I have to say that for whatever reason, I've never really been a big fan of Harry Kane, yet in the last 12 months, I've really started to, to get him and understand him. Obviously, it's been a, a weird 12 months for most of that, but... He'll be, he'll be relieved to hear that. Well, yeah. But the thing is, the thing is, if I'm starting to recognise, you know, how great a player that Harry Kane is, you would hope that, you know, the Man City backroom staff and the defenders would be aware that, you know what, this Kane and uh, Son combination are pretty good. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. How, how have they, they failed to address that? Yes, there's issues. We're, we're missing Fernandinho. Um, Rodri was kind of... Um, didn't play as much in that role well pl- played a lot in that role last season because Fernandinho was uh, playing in defence for a lot of it so he didn't really get the time to sort of learn from Fernandinho if that was the if that was the plan him being the, something of the master of it I I just think that there's something missing in 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 the team at the moment and uh, a lot's been chatted about uh, Kevin De Bruyne which we'll probably come on to in a minute but I'd just like to pick out something opposite to what Jonathan was saying about the defence. My worry is about the goals because if you look back over the last few seasons, City have consistently been pretty sure the last three seasons we've been like top scorers even when uh, Liverpool won and at the very least we've been the first teams to, to reach 100 goals and keep on going. Yet this season so far, City have scored the same amount of goals as Dominic Calvert-Lewin. That's the whole City team. Now, you can't just put that down to the fact that we've had the injury problems with Jesus and Aguero and didn't bring anybody else in to to fill that role. But when you look at that team that we've got and you look at the seasons that we've had recently, every single player on that team is capable of scoring. The season that we went... um, with the, we got 100 points at the end of that season. It was, Kyle Walker was the only first-team player that hadn't scored right, in that season. So the, there's, there's the ability in that team, and yet it's not happening. And we've seen this time and time again. All this possession, we've had the chances and we're not scoring. And I, I know it's not as simple as that. It can't be all down to that XG, that statistic that some people love and some people hate. But I think that's a real concern from where I'm sitting and watching the game. Well, you're right in flagging up De Bruyne and Jonathan, it was another performance from him where despite Sissi didn't play brilliantly or get the result that he wanted, he he did that Kevin De Bruyne thing where he was still one of the best, if not the best player on the pitch and the performance he put in, lots of balls forward and lots of energy in midfield but the body language, he was very frustrated in the second half, he was throwing his arms in the air and he and he looked very, very angry that the movement and the runs in front of him just, just weren't being made. What did you make of him yesterday? Yeah, he doesn't hide it very well. He's not happy with his players. I, and I, I was looking at my Twitter feed, and I believe that um, something was caught on the on the microphone when he was taking a corner to, that sort of caught exactly what he thought of some of his teammates. Uh, yeah, there is a when City aren't playing well, sometimes De Bruyne does try to force it, take things on himself, try impossible passes. I mean, he obviously there's one player in the world who can make impossible passes, it's De Bruyne, but usually that's based on a player making the run. He sees it, goes for it, and it comes off. Whereas some against Spurs and in recent weeks, he's make he's trying to make these passes and and almost force attackers to make the run that they're not already making. I think there's been a bit of confidence lost in the forward line. Um, I mean, it's strange, isn't it? You look at the international break, Torres gets three, Foden gets two, even Diaz gets a couple, assists all over the show. But as soon as they come back to City and back into the Premier League, uh, and they're really struggling to create good chances. There weren't too many. 
times they, they really cut open cut open the uh, the Spurs defence. Um, I mean, obviously Aguero was non use so when he comes back when he's firing and fit, that is a huge huge change. But there's just not too many goals coming from around the team at the moment. It's really either Sterling, Foden, Jesus. Uh, Aguero when he comes back you know Mares seems to have, have dried up a bit the defenders are you know they've got on the end of a couple of free kicks and corners but never seriously threatened Lloris um, Rodri Gundogan there's just not enough goals coming from the rest of the team and it makes it easier mm. to set up against them you know Spurs did a terrific job yesterday and I, one player I would pick out on top of the defence was Schoberg I thought he had a fantastic game, and he. Yeah. We're talking about Rodri. He looks exactly the sort of player who would be perfect for that role for City. You know, I think one of the things that is often talked about with City is being the master of the dark arts. Well, Huberg was absolutely fantastic. He must have done five or six tiny little fouls just to break up the play. Didn't pick up a yellow card, and that sort of intelligence and and. And breaking down the stopping the opponents attacking is just something that City are missing at the moment. You know that perhaps that goal, that first goal doesn't happen. Perhaps that second goal doesn't happen if they just do one of those tactical fouls that they've been renowned for over the, for the past few years. It's well, exactly what Fernandinho does. Yeah. Um, obviously, Hoiberg has come in in the summer, and for me, he looks like a very Mourinho-style player. Every time he gets a little bit of praise, whether it's you, Jonathan, or somebody else, he just has that little glint in his eye, that little smile, because he addressed that position that needed to be strengthened, and he and he got his man. I know there was interest from Everton, and he he got the deal over the line. Another interesting one from yesterday was Serge Aurier um, and. Matt Doherty came in in the summer as a direct replacement for him because Mourinho had enough of him at the back end of last season and he came in yesterday with, with Doherty in self-isolation and other than Son or Kane or maybe even Hoiberg he was arguably Tottenham's best player way more defensively sound than we probably thought he would be before the game is Mourinho beginning to have an effect on these players even mm. someone like Aurier that he's pretty much said I don't really want you at the club anymore but then he can come in and produce that type of a performance against Manchester City I would say the the only thing I can really say in this is never underestimate Jose Mourinho because Jose Mourinho because he you know we we've talked about this time and time again throwing players under the bus doing all these things has he lost it has he lost it and yet actually here he is again like you know having had success twice at Chelsea and then the success abroad uh got an FA Cup with Manchester United if if not much else but he's now got Tottenham Tottenham back to the top of the Premier League whether or not you can keep them there is, is another matter but I, you know somebody like Aurea even before even before Mourinho came in there was question marks over him and he was having I mean he's had, he's had a really difficult year off the pitch as well for reasons that I won't go into but he's he, it's been a really tough year for him I, I'm not so sure he's ever settled um, he's certainly not been popular amongst the fans there's been a lot of question marks about him going up at AWOL uh, and then even then it's not been a case of like he's been turning it up up front by sort of you know sending all those crosses in that they thought they might get from him but yes there's I, I wonder if it is down to this this is one of the players where it's worked and that's why uh, Mourinho has shown faith and brought him back into the fold in that respect whether or not he stays there when the injuries dry up that's going to be uh, the ultimate test to it but I would say that you know, Mourinho is, and let's be honest, like we'd all given up on Mourinho, I think, after what had happened at United. And we all questioned, I think many people questioned it when he came into Spurs. And yet, just look at that table right now. All right, we're only nine games in, but they're back up there. Yeah, and I think in terms of his, his relationship with Pep Guardiola, it's a very interesting one because we talk about rivalries between certain managers and obviously Klopp and Guardiola seems to be the flavour of the month at the moment because battling for the Premier League title. But Jonathan, there's an interesting little stat that, that I dug up um, on the on the rivalry between these two managers. Pep Guardiola's faced Jose Mourinho more than any other manager uh, in his managerial career, 24 times in total. And if you're looking for the possibility of a little change, not necessarily changing in the guard, but a little change in how things are going between them, this is the first time that Mourinho has beaten him in back-to-back games, and it's the first time that he's beaten him with the same club. Yeah, Um I think one thing to say about Mourinho versus Guardiola is that Mourinho knows how to set up his side against Guardiola. We, you know, we talked a bit about how 
the flaws in Pep's high-risk strategy of defending high. He's a master at soaking up pressure and and catching him on the counter-attack. I mean, you think you go back to that uh, famous win at, at Barcelona when he was with Inter, when he was marching across the new Camp. That's what he can do. And if he's got the players, you know, like like Hjoberg, like uh, Alderweireld, Eric Dyer was superb yesterday. If he's got these sort of players who dig in for him and work with him and are on the same, you know, just on board with everything that he's trying to do, they are more than capable of beating any any team in the Premier League. And, you know, they have to be considered as real Premier League title challengers this year. Yeah, and I think obviously Mourinho is going to err on the side of caution whenever he's asked about that. But for me, and I just think the way they've been performing, and I was reading something very interesting about this last night, I've not seen a side, a Mourinho side, that's willing to go to war for him like this since he's into Milan team. Mm. And if you're a fan of any of the other 19 teams in the Premier League, I would definitely, definitely be worried. Uh, guys, we're going to call it there for part one. After the break, we're going to be switching over to the red half of Manchester as Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side won 1-0 against West Brom. But yeah, obviously, there's more VAR chat and more penalty nonsense. Catch you in a minute. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Hello and welcome back to the Football Social Daily Premier League Weekend Review Show. Just a quick reminder, if you hit subscribe on this episode, you can get a brand new podcast every single day. We are your go-to source on all things relating to the English top flight. Right, before the break, it was Manchester City and Tottenham. Now, Manchester United and West Brom. Jonathan, we're going to go to you first again on this one. Obviously, the big talking point at the end of the game was VAR with a number of decisions for referee Mr Coote to make, the brilliantly named Mr Coote. Um, again we're talking about a United performance that's probably been saved by the fact that there's all this VAR chat because they were very poor again and yet again Bruno Fernandes gets them out of jail Yeah it's strange isn't it how bad they are at Old Trafford um, I think that's their their first win of the season and just so often it seems to come down to, to penalties I mean, that's, that's got to be the most worrying thing for, for Solskjaer is that they just don't seem to create any chances it seems to come down to penalties and uh, yeah, more VAR controversy. Uh, I mean, I, I think technically they were all the correct decision. I, I mean, it was quite controversial that David Coote was even refereeing that match rather than uh, being a, a fourth official somewhere else. But I mean, I think the most contentious one was the foul that Fernandez gave on Conor Gallagher because obviously he gave the, he awarded the penalty and then changed it. Uh, I'm not sure how. It looked like he, he he just about got a bit on the ball, so that's probably the right decision. The handball penalty, those are what are being given this season, whether you like them or not. And and I think the one where the VAR stepped in most correctly was the penalty save because I think we wanted when VAR was first floated all those years ago before it came in, we wanted it to stop the 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 outrageous decisions going the wrong way and and unfortunately for Sam Johnston he was a long way off his line when he made that save it was a, it was a great save yeah uh, but it, but it, but he was a long way off the line um, and obviously, and when you look at these decisions, and let's, we'll talk about the goalkeeper one first. Sam Johnston, who's ex-United, back at Old Trafford, probably wanted to prove a bit of a point. Prior to this issue with him coming off the line and making a brilliant save, albeit a, an illegal one from Fernandez's first penalty, it is frustrating, and, and not to be too much of a member of the goalkeeper's union, but his point in his post-match interview, which was very good, was, I'll accept my, my punishment for coming off my line too early, but the favour is always given in the taker. And he, he pointed out Fernandez's hop-skip-jump technique. We've seen that with Jorginho. We've seen Paul Pogba's technique for taking penalties. Is there a case from a goalkeeping perspective to say we're being uh, kind of come down harder on than the, pl- uh, the the players taking the penalties at the moment? I think there is, but I think it's a losing battle because the the problem is is football being the marketable business that it is, everybody wants to see goals. Yeah. You know the, the the things that we want is and we complain, we de- decry when goals are, are ruled out for like tiny, tiny little VAR decisions. Uh, and so I think it is always going to go in favour. And I think uh, as a goalkeeper, 
you're you're on a losing battle. You know, you're, you're you know you're, you're trying to stem the flow of goals that are scored against you rather than ever stopping anybody scoring. I I think he had an incredible game. Whether that was just because uh, of being back there, I've not seen enough of him play this season. But what I saw of him, I thought he was outstanding. Uh, and and just as a goalkeeper myself. Just how good a save that that penalty save was. He he didn't just come off his line. He moved about two yards in the opposite direction. He moved to the right and then came back and still managed to save it. And then again, respect to him, he'd done his homework. He wasn't far off getting the re, the retake as well. Um, I think, yeah, I, I think that's that's an issue in terms of the uh, the 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 penalty that was not given to West Brom. I. I get what is being said, but I have, I've, I've two questions on it. First of all, um, in this sort of the spirit of the game, which is this thing, which is about as useful as saying clear and obvious, if we're completely honest. But we always go back to it. Is it in the spirit of the game? Because at the minute, it just feels like I can kick a ball at your arm and be pretty sure I'm going to get a penalty. Can you? Can you? Are you? Are you in my house now? Is that you downstairs? <laughs> <laughs> but I, but then the thing is, what what this we've seen in, in two games today. I think it was the Villa game as well. Is basically saying, you know, you can kick someone in the shin uh, with a bit of a follow through, and there's a chance you'll get away with it. Um, so then it leads me on to my second point, which is, if it's not a penalty, then is it a dive? And we still have never seen this this thing of. Um, especially in the Villa game, when we come on to that later, but you know th- he went down like properly, and so like if it's not enough contact to cause that, and he's dived, he should be getting booked for that. But is is that just one step too far? Is that adding some more confusion? Is that because we never really had that in long enough to cement what that was? Yeah, and I think when you look at the position that referees find themselves in now with VAR, it is it is a lose-lose position. And obviously, as, as Jonathan pointed out before, the referee, David Coote, there was controversy about whether he would be in charge, whether he'd be fourth official, whether he'd be given another game. And uh, maybe I was a little bit harsh to United at, at the start of this of saying that it was another poor performance. But yes, the, the, the Old Trafford um, winless streak is now broken. This is their first Premier League win at Old Trafford this season. But when you look at the stats, Jonathan, given the fact they're at home, I know obviously there's no fans at the moment, but it still didn't really seem like a like a particularly dominant performance. They had more possession, but based on the chances created, I'm looking here, they've got five shots on target over the course of 90 minutes against a team that you probably expect to be in a relegation battle at the end of the season. Yeah, um, De Gea made a couple of good saves as well. So certainly West Brom had their chances. I mean, John- Johnson certainly had a fantastic game and was man of the match, but... There were the United because it could have easily have lost that game uh, on another day. Um, I mean, it's interesting you're talking about West Brom being involved in a, a relegation battle at the end of the season. There's four teams who seem to be cut off, so already it feels like it's it's three from those four. Uh, West Brom haven't won all season, so the, you would expect the traditional top six to comfortably beat West Brom, Burnley, Sheffield United, and Fulham. Um, so they just don't. I think it's been a problem for Solskjaer for eighteen months now. Is that they don't seem to be able to put away the poorer sides in the division. They, you know, they're at their best when they're played almost like Mourinho style against the top sides. But the difference is Mourinho can go and beat the other, the, the the bottom half of the table teams. Solskjaer seems to be finding a real struggle. He doesn't know what his best team is. He doesn't know who is natural number nine is um, you know he's got an awful lot to sort out and the constantly he's got one eye over his shoulder knowing that at any moment United might just pull the trigger because they you know if there's a lot of teams competing at the top of the table this season and getting into the top four itself is going to be a big achievement and you, you know, you, you look at the table, City are in the bottom half, Arsenal are in the bottom half, uh, Liverpool have got injuries, Chelsea, you know, but they, those teams are going to get it right at some point or other. And you wonder, are United going to get it as right as when City gets it right, when they po- possibly put six, seven run, uh, wins together on a run? United have to be able to respond and do that. And 
I just don't think there's anything happening there at the moment that suggests that that is is going to be what's going to happen under Solskjaer. Yeah, and obviously, and with City and Guardiola's contract extension, and the ink is barely dry on that, and maybe the feel-good factor was dented a little bit with that result against Tottenham. But I think Jonathan's right. There's still this idea that you look at table positions, and yes, City are in 12th and United are in 10th, so there's some sort of weird bragging rights going on at the moment. But there's absolute faith that Guardiola will get City out of this. They'll at least get back into the top four, X, Y, and Z. But with United, they look like a 10th a a place team. Man City look like a team team that's having a bit of a strange run of games can't really seem to, to knit it all together Manchester United look like someone that you go yeah that's probably about right based on where they are and when you look at some of the games they've got coming up before the end of the year obviously the derby against City they've played Leeds which is going to be a difficult game given how they've started the season Boxing Day against Leicester it all looks kind of nasty for Solskjaer in, in the next month or so Mm. And we haven't even touched on the whole Pogba debacle of what's going on there. Um, and, and who knows, to be honest. Um, I think the the really odd thing about uh, Solskjaer's time in charge at Man United is the only time that everybody seemed to have been in full agreement that he's the right man for the job was when he was interim manager. And then as soon as they made him, you know, almost straight away, as soon as they gave him the permanent job, uh, they went on that terrible run and then questions have been asked and they've never gone away. And obviously there are certain people that at the moment are available. Um, is, is that you? Are you throwing your hat in the ring? Are you, are you currently available? <laughs> you, you know what? I just, I, I, I couldn't, I could, I could be doing without the pressure at the minute right now. <laughs> I don't blame I mean, me. I don't blame you. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, apart from being a, a City fan, I, let's be honest. I would take the job, but only to ruin them. Uh, and I, I think they're doing a pretty good job of it as it is at the moment without me lending my support. Um, I, that, that, do you know what? I'm just I'm just taken aback by uh, by Ant's job application <laughs> job application for um, for the Manchester United job. Check him out on LinkedIn, uh, Anthony McGinley. You can find him. Um, Jonathan, we'd be forgiven for you know kind of ignoring West Brom a little bit because obviously the focus is so much on United and Solskjaer, but there seems to be something a little bit Norwichy about West Brom. Mm. Play good football, they've got some talented players, the likes of Grady Diangana and, and Matthias Pereira. Um, but it, it's the old it's the old issues of a lack of goals. Callum Robinson came off the bench, smacked one off the bar. Slavin Bilic's his press conferences just seem to be repeating himself by saying one of these days we're you know we're going to get that win and we're going to kind of knit a few results together. But the Premier League's a harsh mistress in that sense, and he and West Brom might not get that um, opportunity to to get that win. Yeah, goals are a problem. There is a problem for all the sides at the bottom. Um, they, they, they do seem to be able to create chances, and you just. I don't know. I think they, if they could just put one or two wins together, you never know. But the more it goes on, the more they get you get cut adrift. Like I say before, you know, it's, it looks like already three from four at the bottom, and you would fancy Burnley uh, of those uh, most likely to start winning. They've got the experience, so yeah. I, mean, I think I think West Brom are one of those sides that suffer from empty, sta- empty stadiums because the Hawthorns can be a, yeah. a very no- noisy place to go. Uh, one one way you can get those sort of freak results against the top sides, but I, th- I do feel like he's got something to work with with their Bilic, and just they just need a bit of luck to go their way. Okay, straight question time before we take a quick break. Who gets sacked first, Bilic or Solskjaer? Jonathan? Solskjaer. Uh, and would you agree with that? Yeah, I think Solskjaer uh, does not have as much credit as Bilic does for what he's done with West Brom, especially last season. So if it came down to the two of them, I'm, I'm afraid Solskjaer's in the more higher stress, high risk position. Wow, I, I completely thought you'd go the other way on that. Um, considering that Scott Parker's the current bookies' favourite to be the first Premier League manager to be sacked, who gets sacked first, Jonathan, Parker or Bilic? Ooh, I, um, that's a tough one. Um, and there's, there's there's bits I like about Fulham, but they they just don't look ready for the Premier League. And I think Parker's a little bit inexperienced, so I'd say Parker. And would you go along with that? Get Scott Parker back in the oven for a bit. 
I, I just have this wonderful vision of like uh, Scott Parker and Slavin Bilic thinking, oh, I'm just going to relax and listen to the uh, football <laughs> social <laughs> daily. And both sat there going and just gulping as they listen to this. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I think what I saw of Fulham yesterday, in the moments, I've seen moments of Fulham, I've gone, actually, they're not that bad. Um, I like Scott Parker. Um and so if it came down to the, yeah I'm just going to do it if it came down to a Strictly Come Dancing I'm just going to go with the, the, the person I like the most <laughs> so I'm going to pick Scott Parker <laughs> to, okay. to stay and, and, oh. and Billich to get sacked yeah okay okay well we've had all the things thrown in there I, I had then this vision of Scott Parker and Slav and Billich on Strictly Come Dancing together and <laughs> how do you think they'd gone on if they did if they both let's say they both got sacked and they had a bit of free time on their hands that could be a possible option for them Oh yeah, completely. And uh, you know, they, we, they've both seen like you know they they've got interesting styles, and so I, I'm sure they'd well the judges. Okay, right. Uh, a ridiculous end to the second part of the podcast. <laughs> um, Strictly come dancing potential winners: Scott Parker and Slavin Bilic. And Ant McGinley throws his hat in the ring for the United job if Solskjaer joins them or heads off to Big Brother or something like that. After the break, yep. I promise we're going to get back to the football and it's Everton's three-two win away at Fulham. Scott Parker, sorry again if you're listening. And we're going to be rounding up all the other Premier League action from the rest of the weekend. Catch you in a minute. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Hello and welcome back to part three of the Football Social Daily Premier League Weekend Review Show. We've covered Manchester United's win over West Brom and also Manchester City's defeat away at Jose Mourinho's Tottenham. The other big game from the weekend for me was Everton, 3-2 winners away at Fulham. Now, the reason that I've picked up on this game, uh, Jonathan, is because before the international break, Carlo Ancelotti and his players hit a bit of a stumbling block. No win in four, game, four games before they went away with, the, with their national sides. Despite the fact that, yes, this is only Fulham they did still have to go there and get the win and this was a hell of a, a seesawing game between the two teams but in the end the Blues spearheaded by Dominic Calvert-Lewin had just enough and that'll be a big boost for Ancelotti yeah it will and I think that's where Ancelotti shows his his quality he's been around as a manager he's been to top clubs he's he, he won't panic he knows exactly what to do he will have got the players back from the international break and and just settled everyone down obviously you know Dominic Dominic Calvert-Lewin absolutely flying at the moment and he you know he, he will have enjoyed his time at England with England um you know he knows where he is in the pecking order with England you know you're not going to overtake Harry Kane anytime soon but you know it's it's a good experience this is the season when he's really come to life and like I say, yeah, Ancelotti will just have them just nicely composed. We'll say, just forget about those last few games. This is Fulham. This is one we can win. Get ourselves back into the mix. Uh, and, and okay, it was a bit closer than he would have wanted, but they've got the three points, um, and they can, you know, there's no breaks now until March, uh, and he can go and do his stuff. Uh, and talk to me about Richarlison. Everton fans were very upset that he's been sidelined for over a month and he didn't play in that run of games up to the international break. Goes away with Brazil, scores and plays well, comes back into the starting lineup today. Didn't get on the score sheet, but he was a massively important player for Everton. He's going to be key for them if they want to get into Europe. Yeah, and uh, I, I think he should almost be credited with that first goal for Calvert-Lewin because I'm not sure how much Calvert-Lewin knew about it. It was just that perfectly uh, placed ball uh, which kind of got cut up between his legs as he was running and uh, it was just by the lure of, of Calvert-Lewin being there. I, 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 whatever he, he'd done, I think it would have gone in the way that ball came in. Richarlison's been a great player since he came to the Premier League. When he came to Watford, he was a real, you know, he was a real talisman for them as well. There are question marks about his discipline because uh, we've seen him get a few too many uh, red cards from IQ, but he does definitely add something to it. And I know when he came over, you know, his, his aim was always to break into that Brazil squad. So I'm really pleased that he's, he, he's there because I, I think as well, you know, we are just talking about Calvert Lewin in England there. You know, it's it's maybe not as much of a of a, of a of a of the same kind of status to play for the England team as it used to be. I think possibly because of the money in the Premier League 
and those kinds of things. But, I, you know, in Brazil, you know, that is the pinnacle to get to play for the national team. And I think it's still um, still re- revered in a way that we've maybe lost a little bit over here. Um, and, yeah, I, I think definitely that there was there is something to that uh his impact on the team was great uh rodriguez has, has had a few little injuries as well he's back in the team i am starting to think i should be swapping out rodriguez for richarlison in my fantasy team because it seems to be that uh rodriguez is the one that plays the ball before the assist and it's the likes of richarlison and, and, and the, the pre-assist the goal the pre-assist unless they want to bring that back in and retrofit me with the points and then i will be fine Fair enough. Uh, were you taking Tor Trafford when you when you take over the United job? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, we, we all know that United will give me the money to to spend on whatever I want. So, yeah. Um, Jonathan, if uh, Everton managed to keep Rodriguez out of McGinley's United's <laughs> grasp, um, what do they need to do to get into to Europe for certain? Obviously, top four is is the longer term aim for Ancelotti and, and Marcel Brands, and the players they've brought in, the money they've spent this summer has has built a real core around some talented young players. Obviously, Calvert Lewin's getting all this attention, but Rodriguez, Richarlison, Alan, who's been brilliant at the base of that midfield, they've got experience in the likes of Seamus Coleman and, and Luca Dean at fullback. In a nutshell, obviously with the window coming up. What do they need to do? Or, or do you think they've already got enough squad-wise to make sure they can get a place in Europe next season? Yeah, I think they've got a strong squad to, to compete for the top four um, and, and Europe. Uh, I mean, just looking at how the results have gone this season, you've got to say the defensively is the issue. They are conceding a lot of goals. They've not kept a clean sheet in the Premier League since the opening day at Spurs. They've conceded at least two in every game, apart from against Crystal Palace, they, they are conceding too many goals. I mean, I don't think Jordan Pickford was particularly to blame for any, either of the goals to, today for Fulham, but he is been a bit of an issue this season. Away from the, obviously, the unfortunate challenge on Virgil van Dijk, he's made a few errors. Um, he is... I would say the biggest concern, but also I think maybe the, a new centre back. If they were to bring in a new a new player, uh, I'm not I'm awfully convinced by Yerry Mina. I think he's he's done okay, but I think that's one area where they could strengthen. But I don't think they necessarily have to go out in January and, and add. Uh, I think they've got a core of a, of, a, of a strong eleven that will yeah will certainly compete for Europe and and possibly push that that challenge for the Champions League right into the final few weeks of the season and, and maybe just get it uh, Ant another game another bad weekend for Scott Parker and for Fulham um, we thought we'd seen the worst penalty of the season with Adamola Luckman oh. against West Ham and then Ivan Cavallero gave, gave him a run for his money when he booted one right into the Thames when, when you can't score penalties in back-to-back games and they're two of the worst penalties you're going to see the writing's on the wall for Parker and for Fulham no? Yeah, especially this is a season where penalties have been so important. But you look at the difference penalties have made to Solskjaer. Imagine if, Mo, and obviously Fernandez has missed a couple and he's been lucky with some retakes. But imagine if you know fifty percent of the penalties that United got uh, weren't scored. What position that they would be in? I have to say as well, in, in terms of uh, in terms of that penalty um, on on Tuesday, no word of a lie. I went out for a walk. There's a place near me up in Todmorden called Gaddings Dam, and on the way back down, I fell exactly the way Cavallero slipped. And I tell you what, that. <laughs> When you go down like that, were you it taking hurts. were you taking a penalty at the time? <laughs> I wasn't. I was. I was avoiding cow dung. But uh, when when you go down like that, you don't have time to think about it. And that is, I mean, just when you're walking down a hill, right? That's painful and embarrassing. When you do that on a football pitch, and bear in mind as well, I think that's only the second penalty that's completely missed the target this season. If I'm right, I think because the first one was when De Bruyne missed that penalty and just put it past the post. Uh, but at least, you know. De Bruyne managed to stay on his feet. I mean, that's oh, just painful, painful to watch, painful to experience. And it's, it, you know, considering that they, they um, in the end, it was pretty close, that could have made the difference. And, and for, for Fulham, for Parker's job, for, for that club, you know, a point against Everton would have been really good in terms of um, positivity and moving forward. Um, the, the, they have some good players there. Um, 
I, I, I'd rather not see Parker end up on Strictly Come Dancing. <laughs> but I think I think the way they're going, that, that, that could well happen. Okay, fair enough. Uh, Iban, if you've popped round to the manager's house to listen to the podcast, uh, Ant sympathises with you, but he thinks that your manager's probably going to be sacked pretty soon. Uh, moving on to the other games of the weekend, Chelsea, third Premier League win in a row, Jonathan 2-0 away at Newcastle. Um, this is a bit of a case of Lampard's stars, his summer signings. If one of them doesn't get you, one of one of the others eventually will. Team, Timo Werner's been better prior to the international break and he went away with Germany and looked good, but he couldn't hit a barn door yesterday, but kept his head up kept his confidence and and slid Tammy Abraham through with it with a brilliant assist yeah I really like the look of Timo Werner I liked him when he was at RB Leipzig um, I thought he would be a, a big success in the Premier League and it's taken him a little bit of a time to, to settle but he got those goals before the international break uh, yeah he was very unfortunate not to score against Newcastle I mean that one in the first half he slipped it wide when he, uh, you know, he had just had the keeper to beat, but a fantastic run for the second goal. Uh, it's it's very difficult to to say whether this was Chelsea really getting towards their best form because it's a hell of a squad he's got there, or whether it's just one of those Newcastle performances where they just when they're flat, Newcastle are extremely poor side. Um, so it was just an extremely comfortable win for Chelsea, but. I think they should be very excited as well because they. I think the worry for Chelsea was that they might take a little bit of time for some of their new signings to settle. Well, they're now nine games into the season, so they should be feeling at home, and they're already way up there uh, challenging in the top four. Yeah, I would agree, and I think Werner, given the talent he's got, the, the misses are not really going to affect him. I, I still fancy him to be a massive part of Chelsea's season. Um, Ant, Aston Villa one, Brighton two, the epitome of a timely win, you'd say for Graham Potter's team. No win in five Premier League games. Brilliant winning goal from Solly March. The best way to describe this when I was writing the report and I was trying to think of a word was just. Swish. He swooshed the ball into the top corner. Uh, unfortunately, Google doesn't have a word for swoosh, so I had to go with something else. Um, you get the sense that Potter and Brighton needed this because, as Jonathan said, that, that little group of teams that are getting cut away, if Brighton hadn't won, then it would probably be a, a bottom five instead of a bottom four. And these types of wins are going to be absolutely vital for them. Yeah, I mean, there's the same difference between them and West Ham in eighth as there is between them and Fulham just beneath them. So, yeah, it just show it's important. And um, just in the history of the club as well, that's the first time the Seagulls have ever won at Villa Park, uh, which, I mean, in these days, you know, are these things significant or not? Maybe that's something that they can take pride in and build upon. I, I want to say, actually, I, I, I was really pleased to see that goal from Danny Welbeck. I've always liked him as a player. He's had these trouble with injuries, but that was a beautiful opener from him as well. And we, you know, we've talked about this a lot in the in the past on this show, especially with the way Potter we've said about like how we like Potter's style of play and his philosophy and what he's trying to do. But then there's that question of like, oh, is it is he gonna be able to like play with the resources he's got and the team that he's got, the players that he's got at his his disposal and, and keep them in the Premier League and challenge. And he got away with it last season. I think it's fair enough to say say that. Um, I think at this moment he won't be. He'll be sleeping soundly. I think he'll be very sleepy, very sound because there's definitely three worse teams than them this season, and they're still playing some good football. In fact, there's there's been some great performances from them this season. Yes, when you look at it, it's like uh, two wins and four defeats. It's not great form, but when you consider that. You know, there are three teams that are still to win this season. I think for now, he'll be all right with that. So on the sleep armature, Graham Potter's doing okay. Um, one game that probably would have sent you to sleep was Leeds United against Arsenal. As an Arsenal fan, I was absolutely delighted that the final whistle blew on this one, Jonathan. Dreadful, <laughs> dreadful away at Elland Road and Leeds massively unlucky not to win. Hit the woodwork three times in the second half as things got a bit more exciting when Nicolas Pepe got sent off. But this was, was poor from Arsenal. And obviously all the talking points are going to be directed at Pepe. But we shouldn't you know move away from what was a bad performance from Arsenal and a frustrating one for Leeds yeah it was a poor performance from Arsenal I thought the standout moment was Alioski, Alioski the way he, he just subtly kept winding Pepe up and then just drew him into that stupid head put I mean it was it, oh. was, it was classic classic old school uh, just wound him up and then and, and then Leeds should have gone on and won it they were very unlucky obviously it hit the woodwork three times but 
Arsenal are a curious side at the moment because when you look at them, when they play the way Arteta wants them to play, they, 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 they look like they're moving in the right direction. And the last couple of weeks, it's all gone a bit wrong. So it was always going to take him time to, to, to turn things around. Um, but yeah, it's it's just gone a little bit off the rails recently and uh, Arteta needs to address that and pull it together. But I, I was surprised to see Leeds down in 14th. I thought they'd made a better start. It just felt like they'd made a better start than that. But um, they should have won that one. A decent point they probably have taken before the game. So uh, they're, they're, they're doing okay. And Ant, we're going to give you Jerry Springer's final word on the last game uh, that we're covering on the podcast. <laughs> Sheffield United nil, West Ham won. Chris Wilder, no win this season. Nine games without one so far. He must have kicked a black cat or done something terrible in a previous life. Uh, or maybe it's just a bit of second season syndrome and an absolute wonder goal from Sebastian Haller. Yeah, if you've not seen that goal, basically, if you've ever played football as a kid and then somebody's much older brother or dad came in and joined one of the teams and was able to hit the ball three times harder than anybody else. That's basically what Haller's goal was like. It was incredible. And actually, I think I think the keeper got right in front of it, but there was so much power, it just went, I'm, I'm going in anyway. You're not having anything to do with it. Um, <laughs> it was it was a much better game than I was expecting, especially when you, you consider that Haller hasn't scored himself. I think December last time was the first time he scored. I'm not even sure if, if this is the first time he's actually scored away for West Ham as well and, and Sheffield United have only scored four goals this season and to be honest they, they, they're unlucky McBurney especially was, oh, especially at the end great chance for him as well but um, yeah I, I think the the issue for Sheffield United is that you know, I don't. I'm not so sure that the strike force was that good last season. It's just up until the restart, their defence was solid, and and ever since that, when you go back and you look at the last few games towards the end of last season, again it could be what Jonathan mentioned earlier: this fact of not having the crowd there, not having that intimidating atmosphere. But that that that's that's where I think the problem is, as much as not having somebody who's putting those chances away. Yeah, I would agree. And I've just checked. Yes, you are correct, Ant. That was Sebastian Haller's first away goal as a West Ham player. So, congrats. Uh, sorry, first away goal this year as a West Ham player. So, congratulations, Mr. Haller. Well done on that. Enjoy your weekend. If you're round at Scott Parker's listening to this podcast with Ivan Carbolero, good evening, guys. And uh, thanks please, for... please send a picture of this. I'd love to see this on social media. <laughs> thanks so much for listening. And if you're not at Scott Parker's uh, living room and you're just listening to this in your own house, thanks so much for listening. Ant and Jonathan, great stuff. Thanks for coming on. Uh, great stuff, thank Fergal. you. Yeah, Fergal, I'm going to hire you as my head of uh, PR when I'm at United, so thanks. <laughs> okay, brilliant stuff. Well, uh, on that note, there's a chance that myself and Ant might not be on next week's podcast as we might have got ourselves brand new shiny jobs, but just in case we are, make sure you're listening and tomorrow the guys will be back reviewing Liverpool against Leicester City and looking ahead to the two Monday night games. Don't forget, hit subscribe on this episode. You get a brand new one every single day and we'll see you very, very soon. Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.